Atop the crown of Agadon, the party, ready to use the heart of the void, was stopped by the appearance of Karagas. Before a fight could ensue, they were overcome by a strange ethereal power that brought them to their knees as darkness encroached upon their vision. Cad, stepping forward, declared his intention to finally understand the group. For Mick, as this darkness takes you, there's a ringing in your ears as Cad stalks closer and closer to your group who seems to be equally incapacitated. But the sound of the mountain has already dissipated. Even though your vision remains, though it narrows and narrows, there's a different noise on the wind than the wind itself. A soft, slow, feminine voice and the light picking of gut strings. And then finally, as the darkness completely encompasses your vision, you're brought back to candlelight rain outside. And before you is a woman in her changeling form, unabashedly beautiful, but at the same time uncanny. And she picks at a lute, and you watch her, her fingers expertly fretting and strumming and crafting this beautiful motif, this movement of music and emotion that wells up inside you, and you feel a tear on your cheek. And then this isn't like what you saw in the Twilight Eternal, where you were simply an observer to these things, but looking down as you go to wipe the cheek, it's a child's hand that comes up into your vision. And this woman, she looks at you, notices this, this slight crying, and she'll just smile during her song, but she won't stop. And she just keeps singing and humming and strumming, drowning out the oppressive sounds of the outside world, the rain and the shouts. You hear wood creaking and breaking. You hear muffled groans and grunts of pain. And as you even have the slightest inclination to turn your head this way or that, she'll reach out a hand and keep you looking just at her. You posit you can't be more than six, maybe seven years old. This is a memory. Though you're not looking at it with a child's eyes or a child's mind, you are Mick as you were. You remember standing on top of the world and being put under by Cad, and then you're here. No in-between. Mick has seen this scene not only once as an observer in the Twilight Eternal, as was mentioned, but has seen the face of his mother over and over and over again as he's tried to sleep. And so this is an all-too-familiar scene that he's confronted with. And the first time as he, as he saw it in the Twilight Eternal and was confronted in that, this time as he's confronted with it, he doesn't have the same adverse experience to seeing this. He does have sorrow in experiencing so much since the Twilight Eternal. Does something different than he has before. She's definitely been haunted by the image of her mother for many years and doesn't dare lock eyes with her. But at this moment, she looks up and makes contact with her mother's eyes. And your mother almost playfully shifts her visage from this stark white eyes, gray skin, like fiery shock of reddish hair to a woman of a tan complexion as this hair that was once wild and flowing above her head just kind of falls around her to her shoulders in these glistening black locks. 
her eyes just as dark, deep and brown, and her smile shining brightly. She looks at you, taking on this new persona in an instant, almost playfully. Recognizing this as kind of a little playful gesture, Mick will shoot her a half-smile, kind of playing along with this. But then he notices that something doesn't feel right about this scene, and it isn't exactly the way that Mick remembered it. Mick will look outside and will divert her eyes from her mother. As you try to peer outside of this little wooden hovel that you existed in for a good portion of your childhood, the music will stop with a discordant twang as one of her hands again goes to the side of your face to direct you to her, but another hand goes, and quite forcefully so, to your wrist, giving it a painful squeeze and pulling you a little closer, and she'll shake her head and in that shake, immediately transforming back into this changeling woman. And she says, no, Mick, here. And she does not loosen her grip on your wrist, but the hand that was at your cheek, then she'll just point two fingers in her eyes, two fingers in yours, and then back. She says, only on me, okay? Not there, just here. And with the sound of her singing gone, with the sound of her playing gone, Outside, you hear more intensely these sounds of deathly violence, of someone probably being kicked and beaten by multiple individuals. You hear coins jangling on the cobblestones, and then just these gurgles and groans as footsteps recede. And again, she just looks you dead in the eyes and says, Here, nowhere else, just here. Mick is going to yank her wrists from her mother's grasp and say, No, I, I'm not a child anymore. And Mick is going to stand up and try to move towards the sound, recognizing that she's in full control of her body. As you go to stand, your mother slaps your face intensely with this white hot hand on your cheek and as you cradle your jaw for a moment you look back up at her and it's not her that you're looking at suddenly you are backstage in some performing parlor there seems to be a gathered crowd just outside vaguely hidden behind a velvety curtain and there's a woman standing before you and you can see just past this woman in a large kind of like stage mirror that's a little offset you are presenting as a man currently. You have a lute strung across your back, and this lady just looks at you and says, that's the best you could do, honestly? After everything. <laughs> okay, Mick, if that's how you want to put it, then we're done, all right? Here's the thing. One song. I'll give you one song. And then you will never see me again. And if you ever step foot in any establishment owned by Hayden or his ilk, you know what I'll have them do to you. Okay? Mick being thrown into this is immediately petrified and kind of stammers back from this woman, remembering a locked memory that really he hasn't really thought about for a really long time and an all too recurrent experience set that Mick had. And Mick will say aloud, not really towards the woman, but loud enough that she could hear, What is this? What is going on? As you bustle backwards, you kind of impact a, a larger figure and looking up, there's this gray and red-skinned tiefling 
that points toward the stage. And he's like, both of you are up. What are you doing? You're, you're holding up the show. Uh, and then Mick, you know, is not really sure what to do, but will kind of go in suit to what happened initially in, in his personal history and continues on through the show. The show must go on. This is almost presented as a dream, really, where one instance doesn't necessarily connect to the next with any sort of coherence. So one moment, yes, you're bumbling backstage and then you make the decision to perform and then the performance is well and done and over and you're sitting with absolutely basically no stimulus from that moment being presented to you other than maybe the sound of distant clapping slowly fading as you sit in, I guess, this tavern's, this parlor's equivalent of like a green room or something where the performers can go and prepare. And there's sweat coming down your forehead. It must have been a a rousing performance. You see that a couple of your loot strings actually uh, have been removed as if you were right in the process of restringing them. And then there's a small rap at the door. Mick, safe to say that he in this moment is very much so uh, experiencing a mix of emotions. One minute he's feeling elation from the performance I did and the crowd's reception to it. And the next is kind of feeling overwhelmed and exhausted. And as he hears these raps on the door, he's going to wipe the sweat off his brow and try to gain his composure and will slowly but kind of rotely uh, go towards the door, just playing a part in what's happening. With Mick in the old world presenting as a man, is this basically the same appearance that he had in... Egadon when he was Talik? No, very much so. Mick, um, in this moment, it's it, it seemed to be a hit to be more of a dwarvish. Um, and so Mick, for this time being, is going to be disguising himself as a dwarf and kind of a, a modest looking dwarf, not your traditional look of what you would imagine, not like Barty or anything. So looks like a young dwarf, essentially. Well, as you head to the door and open it up, there is someone of a similar stature standing there. And you see an older, kind of squirrely looking halfling standing before you. He's got like a five o'clock shadow looking stubble, a little mustache that is a little more than like a pencil streak. And he has these thick eyebrows and these dark eyes that look at you with just this excitement but there's something behind it all that isn't right. And he's like, my goodness, you! I'm sorry to barge in like this, but I just had to meet you after that performance. I was amazed. You're Mick, so I've been told. Uh, Mick kind of feels, as you mentioned, just like this is kind of a dream, but will play the part. And so composing himself will say, why, yes, uh, yes, it's me, Mick, or you may call me Mickey. I love to meet my fans, my adoring fans. Of course. Would you like me to sign anything? Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> Perhaps, but not exactly in the same vein that you you might expect. And now, Chris, all of these instances, the time with your mother, the time backstage, this interaction outside a dressing room of sorts, it's kind of coming like these are not fabrications. These are memories that are being drummed up. And so you remember this halfling 
from the old world and the brief stint that perhaps you were associated with him. And even before the words are coming out of his mouth to announce himself as Kreml Orangehorn, you know that this halfling served briefly as, like, your manager. However, much to the detriment of your career. Because, come on, have you seen the guy? Uh, <laughs> But, and he says that, and he holds out his uh, his hand for you to shake. And he says, I, I, I'm interested really in, in the business of the whole thing. I think your reputation precedes you. I've heard some ill dealings about some of the proprietors of s- establishments around here. A, a Hayden of sort comes to mind. But I think what you have is an image problem. And I think I can help you move past that. Mick takes a second with this, recognizing who it is and what happened preceding this conversation. Kreml, right? Uh, Kreml. Kreml Orangehorn. Of the Lowland Orangehorns. Ah, how lovely. You'd have to excuse me. And Mick is going to try to exercise some autonomy in this and kind of walk away from Kreml, if, if he can. You would have to, like, push past him. He's kind of occupying the whole doorframe here. And his hand is outstretched, like, on the door in that very kind of almost predatory fashion. Like, this is not a good individual. He wants something from you. And he says, "Uh, look here, I I know you are not of the hill folk. You're not... Of the mountain people, either. You may have fooled everyone on this side of the river, but believe you me, that ruse can only go on for so long. I think where a star is born is from the heart, Mickey. And you have it. You have heart. I can see it, even beneath this this veneer. I think people want to see the real Mick on stage. You know what I think? Uh- I think I need to get out of here. Mick, kind of recognizing that these are just memories, will very condescendingly will push his head out of the way and will push past him. <laughs> <laughs> very, like, faux pas when dealing with the shorter folks. Oh, very, of... very much so. It would have been better if he patted him on the head or something. <laughs> so... Would it be better? I No, not at all, but it's still... <laughs> As you do so and then bustle forward, you briefly turn back and then when you turn around again, you trip. And instead of falling face down you know, on the floorboards that are in the back of this inn and the little hallways that make up backstage and whatnot, you fall face first into snow and you realize you're wearing gloves. You have a big coat on that's got a big like fur-ish collar and fur around the wrists. And there's this taste in your mouth as you spit and the snow is just spattered with a a little bit of blood. And as you turn onto your back and look standing above you, you seem to be in another sort of backwoods town right on the edge of the forest, a frozen river not too far away. And standing above you is a dragonborn woman, a dwarven man, and then a human woman. And the dragonborn walks up and then offers her hand down to you. Mick is going to take her hand. And she'll hoist you to your feet, help you up. And you see that her knuckles are bloodied as well. And you're connecting the dots as this is coming back. Like, she's the one that punched you. 
And she says, All right, Mick, have at it, and we're squared. And then she'll just, like, present herself <laughs> to strike. And Mick is taking on a, yet another appearance, and this time is an older gentleman, probably mid-40s, maybe early 50s, got some salt and pepper hair and a goatee, you know, looking, looking fly in this wonderful outfit. And Mick is not going to ready himself to, to punch her, although he does think about it for a second, but instead says, Zazria, please, I'll get your money. I, I swear, please, we, we don't have to resort to violence for this. Zazria drops this pose that she had adopted for you to, like, punching bag her. And she'll just roll her eyes, uh, put her snout in her hand, and be like, Mick, I don't want... Your money, okay? <laughs> Look, I've already come to grips that whatever I've loaned you in the past is well and long gone, okay? I've known you a while and too well. It, it took him a second to kind of jolt himself out of this to realize to not make the same mistakes that he did in the past when this originally occurred and realizes completely uh, who she is, Zazria, and, and his relationship to her. You know, I don't understand Zazria. And Mick takes on a different tone noticeably from what he was doing before in response to her. Why do you stick around after time and time again I let you down? And she will just look past you into this imprint in the snow that you'd made when you got knocked down in this little speckle of blood and she says oh, I don't know and she'll look at her friends who have probably been asking her the same question for months <laughs> and she'll just silently shoo them and then she'll look back at you and she says because who the hell else is going to pick you up hmm? perhaps that's I don't know something on my part that I need to look into that's not working, but I always saw you, Mick, as someone who was not always quite whole, and I think I've deluded myself long enough thinking that maybe that was me that could have been the missing piece, and I've seen over and over that it's not the case, and I, I, I can't help you in that way anymore. I, I thought perhaps that we could have still been friends after everything, but how much you owe me and how much, well... I won't get into details about the trouble that I'm in because of what you've done, but I think it's best that you leave this time. Although the conversation has taken a turn from what originally did uh, after Mick posing that question, the end result was the same. And in fact, the first time that this happened, Mick did just that, and he left, never to see Zazra ever again. Mick is going to heed the advice as he originally did of Zazra and will turn from her and start to walk away in the snow. And as you turn again with this leap of logic of just being transported from one place to another, but it doesn't seem that jarring, it's you turning after having just like told a bar maid or someone to fetch you something. And as you turn back around, you're sitting at a table and across from you is nursing a mug of his own, Cad. Though he's quite out of place here as the makeup of this tavern seems to be denizens of the old world still. Mick is exhausted at this point, but we'll entertain him as he's there at the counter and we'll say, all right, Cad, 
What are you doing here? I'm simply enjoying a drink. Has it been a long day? Oh, Blumenhain, please cut to the chase, Cad. Why are you doing this? Why am I doing what? Be more specific. Oh, oh, come on, now you're gonna be the vague one dancing around with your words. I know that it's you who is causing this to happen. Oh, what does Mick look like right now? Um, Mick is a woman at this time, and Mick is most likely like a half-elf. A little shorter on the shorter side, but nevertheless. Cad will take a sip from his mug and just look around the bar. Unfamiliar faces. New ears, new minds, new eyes, all to ogle you. I didn't take you here, Mick. (laughs) No, I simply enabled the situation. This all, from the alley to backstage to whatever snowy field that just was, this is your doing, Mick. I'm simply here to learn, to observe. Whatever journey your mind is taking us on, it's your doing, not mine. Though what I've guarded so far is... You've made some friends and some enemies in your time in the old world, and I must admit, I stayed out of it a lot longer than I did with the others, because you are more interesting. You've seen more of the world than Vermark did. You're not so narrow-minded as Rolandir in his pursuit of justice or, or vengeance. Truly, not too shaded differently. One from another, those concepts are. However, with you, there's something peculiar, yes. Always one to slight, to cheat. Self-destructive, I'd say. But, what do you know? There's always another river to cross, isn't there? And he'll take another sip of his mug. And at that point, a pint of your own is deposited in front of you. Hmm. And should I take that as a compliment? And Mick will actually take a swig of the pint in front of her. He'll grunt and shake his head, and as he puts the mug down, just, like, wipe some froth from his upper lip. He says, no, no, I didn't mean to compliment at all. Don't mistake any of my words for the slightest bit of admiration. This is purely an academic inquiry. You see, I want to understand what makes you all so insidious. What makes you all so influential to Luna. Because, well, if it weren't for you, I think I would have had what I wanted already. But no, you all came into the mix and messed things up. Well, Cad, and Mick will put down her pint and say, now that you know a little more about me, tell me about yourself. Who is the real Cad? And why does it matter to you who I am? It matters, Mick. What role you play now and hereafter in the nows to come. Honestly, Gad, you think that you can predict that? He gives a smile as he then lifts his mug to his lips again, and in the brief instance that you glimpse this smile, there's something altogether telling about it. It is just colored with a shade of confidence that could only be gained by someone who has seen and knows so, so much more than you do. It's, if anything, a little frightening. In fact, why don't you roll insight? I was just about to ask, so... (laughs) 22? Looking at Cad, meeting his eyes, 
you realize that this is strangely practiced as if this isn't the first time he's had maybe not this conversation with you but this conversation with others of like seeing their their minds essentially Mm -hmm. and not only that but like at this linchpin moment of like standing on top of the world or at least about to do some monumental task that he's just like paused and tried to understand what's going on and why before moving on. And he notices you noticing. And again, he'll drop his mug and give a little shake of his head and say, no, no, you're not the first variable. You won't be the last. But you must understand, I have to account for all things. Luna must use the heart of the void, and she must make that choice of her own volition. It's been difficult, yes, prodding her this way and that, but eventually, one time through, she will make that choice. And if I'm only one part to the whole, why not remove me from the equation, or any of us? Honestly, Cat, you're all talk and no show. Hardly, Nick. If I wanted to remove you, I could. But you must understand that such a desire, the one I have for Luna, the one that she must share, cannot be born from nothing. She needs friends, influences, more than just an old, tired, elfkin mentor. No. So now the question stands for me, what role will Mick play moving forward? Perhaps you will remain. Perhaps not. Perhaps you should rephrase your question. I think the better question that you're asking is what role can I play in your plan? Am I right? No. It's important, you see, that it's hers. I'm beginning to get the picture. But tell me, Cad, you've been ignoring my question. Who are you? Roll insight. Okay. <laughs> That was not nearly as good as last time. Well, close. Um, uh, is a 19. For a brief moment, you glimpse a sort of longing behind Cad's eyes, this kind of sallowness in his cheeks, as he takes on for just a moment this veneer of sorrow. And on top of that, his shoulders sag, as if carrying an enormous weight that is finally for just a split second lifted and he's allowed to experience some kind of reprieve and then it's back to this hard shell and he just shakes his head again and he says I've no answer that would satisfy you only know that I am old and I've seen too much and accomplished too little and sacrificed much too much to be deterred now Oh, Caddy, the little poor, sad, elfkin man. As I understand it, it seems that you have a heavy burden on your shoulders. Care to provide some insight as to what that is and why you're the one who carries it? Perhaps. And then he'll finish the rest of his drink, set it down, and just wipe his hands. But not yet. And as he stands and scoots his chair out from behind him, the scene again shifts as Cad stands and the scene is replaced 
the table is gone. The chair is no longer beneath you, but in fact you are sitting in the warm sand of a beach. Salty air all around you. Cad is sitting not too far off, just down the strand. His knees close to his chest, his hands crossed on top of them. There are seabirds in the air, and you can see in the distance the main Crayley Island, where you lived for a while, but still, uh, to you in this moment, this means nothing, because you don't know it. And then Cad looks over at you, and he says, I think we should clear some things up. And then, in that instant, imagine like a big splotch of paint falling onto a canvas that then just starts spreading outward, these little rivulets of liquid moving out and forming their own little patches and whatnot. That's kind of like how this memory works when suddenly you're barraged with this recollection of being moved to this place and living here and working here and learning here. And all these little side streets of your memory start being filled in until finally it paints in that little moment where you are on this island perhaps only a few days into your stay after some of your initial trials, just trying to survive where you took a moment to breathe and spent it on the beach. And then everything that you've been robbed of by the Crayley is back. I'm going to imagine that this is pretty overwhelming. Essentially a floodgate, right, of just information that was scrapped from Mick's memory. Mick is rightfully so on the ground as he's experiencing this because it's very overwhelming but then he kind of has you know some levity at at that moment and and feels in him that he's finally has that bit that was missing for such a long time and his idea of what the new world would look like finally has its missing piece he'll actually smile at you and it's not this like growling thing that he usually does. He's not being facetious or threatening. It's honestly just like a C type of thing. Uh, Mick is gonna notice this and will actually gesticulate towards Cad and will say What? Something on your mind, Cad? Care to share? Just pieces falling into place. Useful pieces, I think. Time will tell how useful you will remain. And how long you will remain. Will you help or hinder, Luna? This time, I fear you've done a little both. For sure, you've helped her realize her own abilities, her own powers, but also engendered in her this striking independence that you yourself are so proud of. I can't have that. Mick is going to get up from his seated position and will say as he does, Well, it's like you said, Cad. That's up for Luna to decide. And Mick is going to, you know, playfully, but kind of got a good head on his shoulders, will boop Cad's nose. So <laughs> He's very audacious. Cad doesn't <laughs> react in the way you may imagine him to do so, but he laughs. And it's not even this, like, Haha, I know better than you laugh. It's, again, strangely genuine, which, if anything, is even more off-putting. And he says, you're right, you're right. I think, though, you will be useful. 
I think the next mick will have to be a little less you. The child, I think. It's a much better fit. Whatever you lost or gained from the absentee mother, she seemed a little harsh as well from time to time. That needs to stick with you a little more, I believe. That can be instilled into Luna. Mick is, uh, mind is blown and is kind of freaky now at Cad. Like, what? And, and Mick will actually respond in kind. Don't you dare. What are you even talking about? That's preposterous. And Mick's kind demeanor and kind of playful banter between Cad has completely disappeared at this moment. Cad will brush the sand off his legs and stand up. He towers over you. And he'll just put his hands on his hips and look out to sea and go, Oh, Mick, you won't remember anything that I've said in the last little while when you wake from here. I will have to take it from you. And I'll warn you, should you ask any more questions about the nature of things, I'll steal that from you too. And I won't be kind about it. It won't be like the Crayley. So precise, surgical, no. I'll rip it wholesale from your mind. And I cannot guarantee that some other things won't come with it. So whatever you wish to know of me. And he'll turn and look at you. And now the expression he wears is one of just vile hatred. And it's terrifying. He says, whatever questions you want to ask, be prepared to pay for them. Otherwise, as he notices the sun is kind of setting, our time here seems to be drawing to a close. Mick is going to get very worried upon Cad revealing essentially his plan, his sadistic plan, to him and will start breathing heavy. Get out of my head! And Mick will actually advance towards Cad and get in his face, as if to almost attack him. Cad will just cross his hands behind his back and stand unflinching. Whatever plan you have for my companions and me, you will not be successful. I can assure you that. We face far greater foes, and you're the least of them. He looks down at you with what can only be considered pity. And he says, I'm sorry, but that's simply not true. And he'll shake his head again and just look out at the the setting sun. No, Nick, you will be useful to her. You have a part to play, and you've played many parts, and this is just another one for you to play. We'll see how long you play it, how many times you're needed. You must realize you are never going to use the Heart of the Void, right? Mick does not initially answer him, but you can kind of see in Mick's face that he is acutely aware of this. Do you know why that is, Mick? Does it matter, Cad? It does matter why you would never do such a thing. You want to create a world, a better one for sure. I want to make a perfect one. You cannot envision perfect. You change at a moment's notice at your every whim this and that him and her what can i say cad it's part of my nature 
and I don't fault you for it. You are who you are, unashamedly so, which I think is the best quality that will make you a good companion to Luna. A companion, Cad? Or merely a shade of what we used to be incorporated in Luna's disposition? He'll cock an eyebrow as he looks at you and says, I think you've got it all mixed up. No, no, you'll be you, through and through, and she'll be her. But your understanding of the world is what precludes you from using the heart of the void. Your understanding of the heart of the void itself is what stops you from using it. I don't think that you quite understand that Luna has not the slightest understanding of how to use the heart of the void either. I am well enough aware of her ignorance, but I assure you that that ignorance is necessary. Cad, I'm afraid to ask, so I'll just make an assumption. I dare say that you are not an expert either in how to use the heart of the void. Roll insight. Okay, good. (laughs) Man, lots of these tonight. That was very good. 29. Mick knows they are dead wrong. Cad knows too much about the heart of the void. And he sees this realization in your eyes, and he says, I'm sorry, Mick, but I'm going to have to take that from you once you wake. That's very eerie. He'll just, again, adopt this face of pity and say, of all the changing things, she must remain unchanged every time. Though you, the others, come and go, always someone. She never reaches the summit alone. Alas, what am I to do? It dawns on Mick the full reality of Cad's plan. And Mick sometimes is good at hiding his facial expressions, but in this moment definitely is not. And you can see a light kind of going off in his mind. All right then, Cad, I'll throw you a bone. It seems that I am destined to be a pawn in your game. As the sun completely sets and this wave of darkness begins to approach, he'll just put a hand on your shoulder and he'll say, Fret not, Mick. This is the first time you've been here. And when you wake, I can't imagine that I've convinced you or the others to truly not try to kill me. Perhaps it will be your last but we will see. And then with the sun gone, this darkness comes upon you and surrounds you. And there's this rising din, this ringing, and then you're freezing cold as you blink to this blurred vision. You see your companions about you, Vamok getting to his feet, and then Luna standing between the lot of you and Cad. Back to the crown of Egadon. 